Hello, and welcome to Ready for Anything. I'm Linda Lucina, the Managing Editor at Entrepreneur.com, and I'm excited to welcome you to a podcast about getting poised for greatness. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Michael Morton. Hi, Michael. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you. He is the founder of Rapid SOS, a mobile safety and security system that's creating a new technology to link any connected device with emergency dispatchers. His idea is a big one, and we're going to talk about what sparked it and what it really takes to update a true legacy system. But first, a word from our sponsor. We know the world of business can be unpredictable, but Chase for Business has what you need to keep you on top of your finances so you can own whatever comes your way next. Find business news, stories, insights, and expert tips all in one place at chase.com slash for business. Hello, Michael. Hi, Linda. <laughs> so, um, first off, let's just uh, explain to everybody what Rapid SOS is, get everybody on the same playing field. Yeah, so Rapid SOS is an advanced emergency technology startup. The core team's from MIT, Harvard, and Stanford, and we came together after we'd all had some personal experiences with the challenges of, of, of reaching first responders in, in life-threatening emergencies. And I, I think that was kind of our first experience in what is a much broader challenge around universal personal safety and security. So today we have OnStar when we're in our vehicles, we have home security services when we're at home, but when we're out living our lives and the family is increasingly mobile, there's just very limited solutions for safety and security uh, across our lives. Sure, sure. So so bring that down to earth for us all. You have a particular experience that uh, happened to your dad uh, in Indiana. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, so I, I grew up in uh, rural Indiana and in really uh, in an amazing supportive community. But it was one of those days where he just had a heavy snowfall and my father was home by himself and I uh, was watching the Weather Channel as he likes to do and decided he was going to cl climb on our roof and, and clear the snow. And no one was at home and my father's in his late 60s and I think you see where this is uh, was, was a, probably a bad idea and, and certainly in hindsight. And, and so he slipped and fell on the ladder and he broke his wrist, he shatters his hip and it's, you know, it's 15 degrees outside. Uh, he does what we all would do. He's trying to reach first responders from a cell phone, but where I'm from, cell reception is just very weak. And even though we have Wi-Fi at the house, so literally if Uber was available in rural Indiana, he could have pushed a button and a car could have arrived. There was no ability to reach the first responders that he needed until my mom could come home and, and, and use a more reliable connection to, to reach first responders. So that was one of my early recognitions of the challenges of this system, but we've been touched our team and the various supporters by so many different stories of, of, of other people whose lives have been touched by this challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was another personal story you had, um, I think, that a lot of New Yorkers, we are uh, taping this from New York, um, uh, uh, just walking down the streets in Manhattan late at night. Can, yeah. can you sort of take me through that? Because I think it's a pretty relatable one. Yeah. So I, I grew up in, in the Midwest, as I mentioned. And so after college, I moved out to New York. And uh, was kind of like the wide-eyed uh, kid from the cornfields, <laughs> living in East Harlem, actually. And was coming home late one night. It was about 1 in the morning, and it was deserted 111th Street, um, walking back from the, the subway. And I noticed this individual was following me. And as I tried to increase pace, change sides of the street, he did the same. And I realized um, that there was very little I could do in that moment. I certainly couldn't get out my cell phone, ask him time out, like, let me just dial a number. I just need to have this <laughs> conversation about where we're located, what's occurring, all, all these things. It just wasn't going to be possible. And so I thought, 
you know, my best option here might be to actually push a button and, and, and try to get an Uber um, to arrive um, on the scenes, because at least I could do that essentially from my pocket. But there's just very difficult in these emergencies to get out our phone and, and, and access first responders when it's just when you can't have a conversation uh, because of the circumstances. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As uh, someone who works for Entrepreneur Magazine, uh, you and I have had this conversation. Uh, I'm always amazed at um, how um, some of the big, big problems problems like safety um, sometimes aren't fixed as easily as some other problems. You had mentioned that uh, it's easier to uh, to order a burger, to order a pizza. <laughs> yeah. what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's so I spent several years in venture capital as well. And I just, I think, became a little frustrated with, I mean, there's, as we were talking about, there's half a dozen or more services that will bring you a cheeseburger on demand or alcohol or clothing now and all these different services. But there's no ability today other than getting out your phone, dialing a number, and speaking your precise address and what is occurring to reach first responders. And every single year, 250 million of those calls are made, 180 million from our smartphones. And despite all the ways that technology has transformed our life, when our lives are on the line, essentially every one of the functionalities on our devices Real-time video conferencing, precise location, language translation, linking to to, uh, wearables and and other health and medical information, every single one of those is turned off. Mm -hmm. And all you have is a voice connection. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing, Linda, what the 911 community does in light of that. I mean, this is a system that generally works quite well in light of those handicaps. And we've spent months and years in dispatch centers working very closely with first responders, understanding how they manage flows, how even in that panic situation where you don't know your address, they still work with you to figure out where you are. But we carry this technology in our pockets today. Like it's time we actually connect those dots and really help help the millions of Americans that need this this help every single year. Sure, sure. Now, a part of your research for this um, was to spend a lot of time in dispatch centers all across the country. Um, tell me, tell me what you said. Can you paint me a picture of these dispatch centers? What are you seeing? What are people working with? Um, what what uh, should we be um, what should we be considering when we really think about the reality of how emergencies get handled? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, so 911 in this country dates to the 1960s, and it hasn't gone through, the, the infrastructure behind it hasn't fundamentally changed yet. So still about 88% of the country runs on uh, the public switch telephone network. So this is very limited on the amount of data that can flow through into these systems. So in a typical 911 dispatch center, it, it's almost nonsensical to even say that because it's managed at a municipal level across this country. So there's 6,300 6, different versions of this. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a federal or a state mandated system. Every municipality is picking and choosing and there's chronic challenges with funding, uh, with with uh, massive events where there's understaffing. And so in light of all this, you're typically in a you know, we've been in places where it looked like, you know, Paul Revere lived in this building <laughs> in, 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 in a real part of New England. Um, and and it just extraordinary people every day that are showing up, sometimes on Windows DOS-based systems, on giant CRT monitors. Mm-hmm. And they are handling some of the most stressful events that, that we could imagine. And, and we spent, as I mentioned early on, months in these dispatch centers. And I'll, I'll never forget my first one. I was in uh, a, a small two-person dispatch center in Massachusetts. And it was a woman who called um, when her son had committed suicide. It was particularly graphic. And I had to excuse myself. Like, it, it just, the amount of stress 
that that goes into this job and the, and the dedication of this community is just amazing. But every time I'm back in one, I'm reminded that they face all this stress, all these challenges with a system that dates back to the 1960s and, and where as 180 million of us call from help from our cell phones, we can't precisely identify where people are located. We can't send text messages in most parts of the countries. We certainly can't do any sort of language translation or any of these other capabilities. So that's where there's just so much, I think, need here for, for connecting these modern pieces of technology that are in our pockets with these more antiquated pieces of infrastructure that, that exist across our country. And I think that's a really interesting point. So because I think that most people who carry a you know, mobile phone, carry a smartphone, just assume that um, they're being watched at all times for by many, by brands, by, by any mm-hmm. number of uh, uh, agencies or whatever, that uh, somebody knows their location at any time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, certainly we, we, we assume that. We, yeah. we, we <laughs> and I think that um, they would also assume that that same um, knowledge is um, available to somebody if they, you know, called 911, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that that's isn't how how much of um, the gap between sort of us thinking that the smartphone that we just take for granted, that there's this technology. So clearly everyone else has access and can connect to <laughs> the same technology that everyone has. How, how much does that gap um, sort of contribute to us sort of maybe not um, solving the emergency problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that there is a general consensus and awareness in the 911 community that there are challenges here. And, and FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler uh, did a, a fairly noteworthy op-ed in the New York Times uh, in November last year where he talked about how 911 is not ready for the iPhone era and he laid out all these challenges. So the industry has come together around a notion of, of, of what's called next generation 911, which is a internet-based dispatching platform. And it's there's been a lot of thought that's gone into it dating back to 2003. And so what we have is a very robust set of standards to ultimately do this. The challenge, again, is that no one single body can mandate it. So you're looking at 10,000 municipalities that have to fund it, that have to implement fairly technical systems here, and a whole fragmented industry of different providers uh, that, that need to provide different subsystems into that. So it's a level of complexity that is really challenging to do. Uh, and, and so the way we approached this challenge was to say, where is there a universal baseline of commonality? Because mm-hmm. what we can't have is the ability to provide location or stream videos in San Francisco, but not in New York City, for example. So how can we get core information, like your type of emergency, who you are, where you're located, into every single one in a way that's actionable? Mm-hmm. And, and that took us, uh, you know, admittedly two to three years working very closely with the community to figure out how to do. Now, I'm very excited about the ultimate pathway forward here with, with Next Generation 911 and mm-hmm. all the capabilities that provides, but we just didn't feel like we could wait for every municipality to adopt that system. We needed something that would work across the United States today and ultimately would be a global solution. Sure. And isn't it also just this element of the regular person walking down the street, um, if they don't understand the need, like, is, isn't that also sort of contributing to <laughs> not fixing it? You know, yep. if the regular person isn't pushing for it. it there's certainly an awareness challenge among the general public. Mm-hmm. And we were Early on, we ran a Kickstarter campaign uh, a couple of years ago, and it was, uh, um, or I guess you're actually, um, we were touched by all these stories of individuals. I, I mentioned kind of my experience, and most of our founding team had that experience, but I don't think we fully understood the scope of the challenge 
just living our lives, it's not something we think about, right? We're, we're kind of programmed to, to put that stuff aside. And, and we had 650 people that came to us with all of their stories of these challenges, and it was just extraordinarily moving. And I think it's one of the motivators of our whole team today. We have 25 people that really share this passion. And, and I think that it's unfortunately, like to your point, Lynn, it's one of those things that you don't think about until you're in that life and death emergency. And then often people forget, like, what is my address? What is occurring? Like uh, many times those 911 calls are transferred from multiple dispatch centers. So just there, there's such a need here to solve the solution ahead of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what we're trying to do. Sure. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting was, um, so you, you talk about, hey, there's just a, a challenge to uh, for understanding for the general public. And so even you had, when you were educating yourself mm-hmm. on the scope of the problem, you had um, a, a particular assumption of what kind of solution you could build at the very, very outset, yeah. you know, and then you learned, oh, okay, this is actually a different situation yeah. I'm in. Yeah. Can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about that? Yeah. Um, so we started, and I think we were your classic set of probably naive grad students. I mentioned that the core team was originally at, at MIT and Harvard, and, and we thought this was going to be an easy problem to solve. I mean, I mean there's actually many analogies to Uber here where we're going to provide real-time location uh, to a back-end database and a web platform. So we thought we would just do that. Every dispatcher in the country surely had internet access, and we could just throw it up on a web browser. You know, problem solved in, in, in a few months. And we had a in a month time, we had a prototype that worked quite well for that. And then, as I mentioned, we started going and visiting dispatch centers. And that's when I gained this full appreciation that, first of all, this isn't a product like Uber. This is a product that can never fail. And so one of the reasons why 911 has been slow, so slow to adopt new technology is that the reliability has to be there every single moment. And so we, we went back to the drawing board to think about, and my, my co-founder did his PhD in nuclear engineering at MIT, so to think about things almost as an, a nuclear engineer would, and how can we design a system with multiple redundant levels of fail-safe. Mm-hmm. And then we also looked at, inside these 911 dispatch centers, what is the operational flow, and where are the few access points for additional data, mm-hmm. the commonality across the country. And we, you know, what was interesting is the modern... MIT grad student doesn't have a lot of insight into the traditional telecom system in the country that dates back to the middle of the the 20th century. So we had to bring in experts that could really guide us as as part of that. And so the end result today is is, is really a product of so many different constituency groups and people that provided their expertise along the way. The 911 community was certainly the foundation of letting us ask thousands of dumb questions in dispatch centers, spend months just sitting in the background observing operating procedures, understanding the technicalities, all the different expertise at the various carriers and other telecom companies that helped us understand how do these phone networks work and where is that opportunity to push more data. So, yeah, I mean, we, we've learned a tremendous amount about this along the way. And I think where we are today, now that we've, we've successfully soft launched, we're heading towards our full launch uh, later this year, is, is just feeling very good about how the system came together, the robustness, the reliability, and the coverage across the United States, and what will ultimately be a global solution in, in over 130 countries. Sure, sure. One of the things you mentioned, uh, this is a system that can't fail, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we need to trust it. Um, and uh, right now in the startup community, it's very trendy to fail, right? Yep. Failure's great, right? Let's fail all the time. Like, and um, uh, so how does that change what a minimum viable product is for 
Rapid mm-hmm. SOS because it, it, it does change it for you guys. Absolutely. Right? So, so how does that, uh, what does it mean for you guys mm-hmm. to build a minimum viable product? Yeah, I mentioned that we're three years in at this point. So if we were any other startup, we would have launched probably two years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, a mobile app company that takes three years to bring a product to market is, is certainly a long time frame. Mm-hmm. And it was this realization every step of the way that this is a mission-critical life-and-death type of technology, and it has to work. So we've gone through an extensive set of testing. We've done over 23,000 test calls across the country. We'll do things like trigger an alert and sit the phone down in rural Alabama or Texas. We Every single day, I trigger alerts on the New York City subway as we go in and out of service. So. People may be familiar with, for example, using Uber or Google Maps on an airplane Wi-Fi where you technically have service, but you don't have a working internet connection. So those services often don't work there. We have to work Mm. in every single one of those environments. As you go in and out of service on the subway, we have to work. So this took a lot longer uh, to do. And we were fortunate that we had advisors that supported that and investors were, were, were backed by two top global VC funds and several high profile individuals. So the capital base was close to $90 billion saying, this is a solution that we want to see solved. And and uh, and so there was patience with that process. And, and also again, I, I credit again goes to the municipalities and the 911 community that you can imagine when you hand a piece of technology to a set of, of police officers, they're very skeptical, and we, we joke we used to just get interrogated, <laughs> you know, on, on how it works, where it will work, and in really getting pushed in all those scenarios that maybe I wouldn't think of, but they would. So we've had 1,500 law enforcement professionals out using the service since uh, since December when we soft launch, testing in all sorts of environments, uh, in addition to a variety of outsourced testing platforms uh, and, and our own team. So this is... Uh, technology that's um, changed and morphed as we've designed it and built it, but I think we've we've learned a lot and feel very good about the robustness and, and all the levels of fail-safe that I mentioned um, that have been built in from the ground up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just a, a quick question, Michael. So have you ever used a, a rotary dial phone? <laughs> I, I have not, no. <laughs> See, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought so. Usually I ask questions that I know the answer to, and that <laughs> one I did not. So what I, I, what I think I, I love most about um, what you're doing, and I think what the lessons that entrepreneurs can, can learn from it, is that there's a, a melding here between sort of um, uh, two different perspectives, right? So as you're saying, that you've got this legacy system. It was built in the 1960s. And we have modern needs and also modern expectations. People think that something is going to happen with their phone that might not happen when they're in an emergency. Mm-hmm. They think like your father thought, oh, well, I could maybe I'll be okay. I've got my phone if mm-hmm. something happens. You know, like we all think, you know, that our parents if they fell in the house, that maybe they would be able to reach someone, but maybe they can't, depending on, you know, if you're in a rural area or whatnot, mm-hmm. if your Wi-Fi isn't working, isn't very strong. So what I think is, is really interesting in that is um, sort of the, the coming together of those two perspectives, because um, that uh, modernization to fix those legacy systems that can have wide, wide impact. That's that's really what's interesting to me, um, uh, to, to have the biggest impact, the biggest change. Um, and I think that's it's interesting because it, 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 you're creating a solution and um, there you're creating a solution for people that um, they're uh, frame of reference is quite different than yours, right? Which is uh, very important right. <laughs> because you, we, how do we move forward? <laughs> how, do we, how, yeah. do we, how do we move forward? It's it's very interesting. Um, 
So in creating, um, so you're you're sort of tunneling through this um, this legacy system, and um, uh, this is a, a, an important thing I think for people to think about. Um, how do you build trust with people? You you sit with the police officers, you know, you're, they're interrogating you. How do you how do you build trust? What's your strategy? What's your approach for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we realized early on there were. Um, we, we studied this a bit um, at, at HBS, kind of in the uh, public sector entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Mitch Weiss has a class on that. And they give the example of Uber, which was really more of an approach of, of achieving scale and then asking for forgiveness or asking to work with, uh, w- with the cities after you've reached some level of user base. And we realized because of the nature of this service that, that we had to approach the experts. We had to approach the municipalities and the mm-hmm. cities first. And there were times where I have sent uh, probably dozens of emails to certain cities and um, we just maybe got no response because cities are extremely busy, right? Mm-hmm. Staff at cities tend to be well overworked. There's, yeah. they're, they're understaffed and they're trying to solve big problems every single day. And, and so to capture their attention uh, can take time and, and, and persistence more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think what we were fortunate, though, is that this is an issue that so many people, once they read about it or hear about it, can identify with. It's something that we all assume this system is here for us when we need it. And then understanding the intricacies here, like many people at, at a municipal level do, they, they, they're they looking for innovative solutions increasingly. Um, I, I think we were actually, I, I feel like cities often have kind of the stigma that they're kind of averse to change, new technology. I really think the in vogue movement right now is one towards innovation, towards new technologies. Sure. We've seen this at a federal level all the way down to the municipalities. And, and so there really was this embracing of us uh, and this this new way forward from a, from a technology standpoint. So that doesn't mean that we didn't have to work to um, build trust. And and I think one of the things we had to do very quickly is, is recognize that we were here to learn. Mm-hmm. I think that there was probably a a, un, a unearned degree of arrogance starting out and saying this is a system that dates to the 1960s and we can solve this mm-hmm. immediately. Yeah. And looking back on it, not only was I naive, but I was arrogant to, to think so. You know, and 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 I think it was again the municipalities and the law enforcement community that that really helped dealt with <laughs> these kids almost, if you will, right, believing they had a solution here and had the patience and the willingness to guide us in the right direction so that we could ultimately combine an extraordinary set of engineering talent coming out of MIT with all the expertise of the law enforcement community. And so the result today is is an advisory board of some of the top thought leaders in 911, thousands of 911 dispatch centers that have worked with us to develop this technology. 18 top engineers uh, based here in New York City that every day are working from 9 a.m. till about midnight um, on this, dedicated towards this mission. Mm-hmm. And uh, just looking back on the journey, I just feel very fortunate that, that so many groups came together to, to kind of push this mission forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you find those experts, those people that you, um, even in the beginning before you had a formal, like, set of advisors, how do you find the people that are going to be your little Sherpas and take you through it and be like, no, this is the way to go. You need to have because your your solution is very multifaceted. So you need to have um, technologists. You need to have people that are on the ground that sort of know these cities, how they work. You know, how do you um, how do you find those people? The people that are going to give you the best um, the best advice and um, that are going to have the uh, people who can build a relationship with you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it started with having great mentors and advisors early on. Yeah. Uh, I almost bring it all the way back to growing up in rural Indiana. Just there were so many people that believed in me and what I was trying to mm-hmm. do. And, and it gives you this sense of of, of, of kind of wonder and, and what the possibilities might be. That mm-hmm. if we bring together all this expertise, this community of people. So I was pretty unabashed about reaching out to anyone that mm-hmm. would <laughs> answer me. I, I mean, um, I, I cold emailed um, Mayor Bloomberg, for example. I mean, I, we, we reached out to, I, I cold emailed uh, former President Bush. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyone that we could get an audience with, we spoke to about this. We, we had over 10,000 phone conversations in the first year alone. Mm-hmm talking primarily to, to law enforcement professionals, trying to understand, like, how does this system work? And how can we get more technology in here? And so, as I mentioned, I mean, it was a lot of dumb questions and a lot of just unabashed at kind of the initial ignorance and saying, like, you know, we're going to learn this. This is a problem that is solvable, but we have to get up to speed and we have to bring these different groups together. And at the end of the day, um, one of the things that I think most moved me was, uh, sorry, it's almost like emotional just to think about it. It's just how generous people were with their time. I mean, particularly looking back on on back in, in late 2012 when we f- first had this idea, I mean, we were two co-founders that had... Mm-hmm. No idea what we were doing, right? Mm-hmm. And just all the people that would answer all these questions and guide us along the way, we really are a product of their efforts today. And, and every single day, I mean, it just feels like an amazing journey to me mm-hmm. um, and, and and all their support. So Yeah, yeah. I think uh, what's interesting uh, to me a little bit about that, and I think there's a new phase. We talked about this um, earlier where uh, I think that there, it was very popular um, several years ago to, you know, and I, I just say, disrupt, we're going to just break it, right? Um, and uh, and I, I always say that uh, just for fun because I think it's a funny <laughs> thing to say. But uh, I think that we've, we've moved on a little bit, and it's not just about sort of breaking something that someone else built anymore, that there has to be this, there's an acknowledgement that there's a partnership involved mm-hmm. in sort of making these evolutions with these legacy systems. Can, can you tell me a little bit about sort of like um, what your experience has been in that phase, I mean, with that partnership sort of moving from the disrupt thing, mm-hmm. right, to this this um, new feeling where it's like, well, like we, we, we there's an acknowledgement from all sides that um, we all, have, everyone has to sort of come together and, you know, share Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think for us in our journey, it was, I feel like it was a bit of a maturing process yeah. where we definitely started exactly where you said, like, this, we're going to solve this, we're going to disrupt this industry. Done. Right? Yeah, we're going to crush emergency. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's exactly right. And, and, and I, I think it was the first moment that I, I spoke about earlier where this mother called with her yeah. her son that I realized, like, this is not an industry that needs disruption. This is an industry that needs partnership, yeah. that that needs to leverage all the expertise in these dispatch centers, in law enforcement, in cities, and bring this set of extremely passionate and dedicated engineering talent to partner on this particular topic. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that um, that also is one of the things that helped us is 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 that. There was a willingness across our team to learn. Like every chance that our team gets to, gets to um, 
for, for Thanksgiving, we we uh, did this this big thing for local fire. There's a firehouse. The oldest firehouse in New York is straight up the street um, from us. And uh, so on all of our conference calls, uh, there's always sirens in the background <laughs> as a result. Nice. But, but we always are reminded of just how much all these different people have, have helped us along the way. And, 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 uh, and I think that it was the whole team has kind of recognized, like, we can code you know the the potentials are nearly endless. With our our, our team's backgrounds are NASA, Argonne Oak Ridge National mm-hmm. Labs, Google, Microsoft, Oracle. It's an amazing set of engineering talent, sure. but that's only one small piece of solving this challenge. And there's so much wisdom across uh, fifty thousand, hundred thousand professionals in the law enforcement community that that have uh, helped guide us along the way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's so interesting, and I, I, it's an important point, right? Uh, reaching out to to those who have the expertise, and like you're saying, you know, having that humility to ask the, whatever question you want. <laughs> the dumb questions, yes. <laughs> and, and making it be a safe space. I mean, you know, having the, um, the the humility, though, and sometimes I think it's hard for people to um, to realize that they're they're not giving themselves the their own best chance by you know, being able to ask mm-hmm. all the questions, right? And, and so by making less assumptions, fewer assumptions, um, they can, you know, maybe go further than mm-hmm. they could by, because they're partnering with someone else and, you know, together we can go further. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Is there um, uh, a sense, so you, it's a big problem that you guys are sort of, you know, wrapping your arms around. Um, and it can, any startup, anything, any anything is, can get overwhelming. How do you, how do you cope with that? How do you um, either break it down into smaller pieces? How do you um, cope with uh, the largeness of it? And sometimes how, um, how insurmountable some of the challenges can be? How do you, what's your, what's your approach? Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I, I would be lying if I didn't, you know, if I said that this wasn't a journey and there were plenty of lessons. And, and I, I often uh, talk to candidates who are interviewing with that this is a roller coaster and, you know, I want to ride it alongside you and with our whole team. So I, I think one of the things that's unique about our journey, though, is that there is such a groundswelling of support from people in the 911 community, from uh, people that have been touched on the other end with challenges of this. We I, I recently got a note from a father whose son has epilepsy, and he was just heading off uh, to freshman year of college, and he was really worried about in that dorm environment um, and, and there actually was a, a news article uh, fairly recently of a student that had a, um, um, a seizure and was uh, unresponsive and un- undiscovered for several hours. So these these types of stories, the support that they bring, I think really gets you through what can be plenty of challenges. I'll, I'll never forget, I think it was Christmas Eve. I can't remember now if it was 2013 or 2014. <laughs> it's kind of sad that it's uh, – <laughs> but I think it was 2013. Um we had at that point we had uh, myself and, and kind of four um, four engineers and and uh, or three engineers and two of the three quit on Christmas Eve and you know it was just part of the journey. But my co-founder and I, you know, we talked and we said like, you know, this doesn't change the importance of what it is that we're trying to do. It doesn't change all the people that are already invested in getting this solved. Um, and and. Those two individuals have, have since been very valuable advisors for us. They just, you know, weren't ready at the time to, uh, on no salary and a prayer, to <laughs> grind it out with us, you know, 20 hours a day. So uh, so I think that uh, we are in perhaps a more fortunate circumstances than many other startups that there is such a broader community of support that has been around this from the early days. Mm-hmm. And that is 
inspiring every single day for me and I think our whole team. Sure, so. sure. Um, another, uh, say if you were advising a, uh, a, a another fledgling startup uh, that was trying to attack a really, really big problem, another legacy system, um, what, what's your advice? What 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 do you think is going to help them, you know, uh, move move best through that? Yeah, I, th- I, I think almost reflecting on this conversation, uh, what's been really nice is to think about some of the themes that have emerged and, and certainly... Uh, partnership, collaboration, and persistence, I think, are, are three big ones. So anytime you're trying to work through a, a substantial existing infrastructure, the word disruption, it's in vogue as it might be, is just <laughs> almost irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to think about how you can partner with those existing institutions and, and also recognize the amount of expertise they have in this. Most folks that we meet in the law enforcement community have, uh, in the 911 community, often have 30 plus years of experience. Mm-hmm. So you shouldn't kid yourself that just because you know you can throw up a, a fancy website or build a mobile app that you can solve the problems in these different industries. I mean, there's very complex infrastructure that sits behind many of the things that we use on a regular basis. And, and, and so those things change slowly and, and we have to kind of move in the right direction in, in partnership. So um, so that's kind of hitting on the, the partnership and collaboration pieces. Uh, and then the persistence is because of the nature of these things and they do move slowly, um, you know, having that usual sense of impatience that I think serves entrepreneurs well is certainly valuable, but also tailoring that with the persistence to know that People in these systems are, are, are busy and to leverage and bring in the expertise that you need, you need to keep gently reaching out and nudging folks along the way, which uh, we do a lot of. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that ability to um, to keep plugging forward, but with the humility and kindness to <laughs> yeah. to to create relationships that will mm-hmm. be long lasting. Yep. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And and I, I I'll give an example of this. Um a a when we were first getting started, um, uh, Christy Williams is one of the presidents, uh, or, or she runs 44 dispatch centers in, in North Central Texas, and she's uh, very active in the national community. And, and um, I was down in her, her community, and I just kind of called, reached out to her, and she was extremely generous to meet with me. She's unbelievably busy, and I was just this grad student. But she had so much expertise to lend that I just – couldn't help but keep repainting her, you know? So it was like every few months I'd come back with, hey, here's four or five new questions. What are your thoughts on this? I saw this the other day at this dispatch center. Why did it occur that way? And I, I to this day, I don't know why she kept <laughs> giving me the time, but she did. And so she has forever changed uh, our, our organization, our understanding of this problem, as have many other people. So your point to relationships are so important in this when you're taking on these sorts of challenges and, and, and moving, um, making systematic levels of, of, of change. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. Um, the app is available for uh, pre-registration now. Um, tell me a little bit about the launch stuff people should know about. Yeah, so uh, we soft-launched in December. That was a closed launch to the law enforcement professional community. And so uh, in May, we'll be publicly releasing our, our Haven application on iOS and Android. Okay. So what this will provide is Anywhere in the continental United States, um, with one touch of the phone, you'll be able to transmit your location information, um, your contact information. You'll have a robust voice connection, whether that's in Wi-Fi, if there's no cellular connection, over a cellular network, or even in more rural environments, there's things we can do to help manage uh, depleting battery or a, a phone that might be damaged. So a, a, essentially a 
more robust uh, connection to to the nearest uh, 911 dispatch center. And then we can do a variety of other things to connect the family together. So uh, if your son or daughter is supposed to be at soccer practice at 4 p.m., for example, and then they don't show up, with, the, with our service, you can now see exactly where they are on a map, check in with them, and if something were really, um, they were in danger, there was something wrong, we have an ability ultimately to help you connect with dispatch the dispatch center near them from anywhere in the world. Um, so a host of ways to bring this connectivity. And then the final thing, as I mentioned, is, is we do have a global vision for this. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are over 120 emergency numbers globally, and it's very hard to remember in China, you know, it's, it, there's a different one for police versus fire and EMS, for example. So mm -hmm. we'll have, we have 251 uh, jurisdictional territories or countries programmed into our application. So you have one-touch dialing anywhere in the world, and ultimately, we're working on the technology to translate all your information into the right local language and drop it into their system. So whether you're in Sao Paulo or Moscow, and whether you speak Portuguese or Russian or not, one-touch first responders know exactly who you are, the help you need, and are on their way to you. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, that's all the time we have today, Michael. But uh, thank you so much for uh, going through all of this for us. I, I think it's such an important thing that you're doing. And uh, the lessons that you're learning are very, very important for other entrepreneurs who are trying to sort of make big change happen. So I really appreciate you coming here. Thank you, Linda. It's a real pleasure. Um, and so if you want to learn more about uh, Rapid SOS, you can go to rapidsos.com. To uh, listen to more podcasts from this series, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or follow us on SoundCloud. And before we go, one last word from our sponsor. When you're running a small business, you know that whatever can happen probably will. Chase for Business offers you a complete view of your finances, so no matter what comes your way, you can own it. Find business news, stories, insights, and expert tips all in one place at chase.com slash for business.